Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. We're going to have Dylan come up for the scripture reading. And you can open your Bibles to First uh, John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, 13 through 21. First John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, good morning. It's great to be together on this Palm Sunday, yeah. We're going to finish up First John this morning. We're finishing our series. So it's not a Palm Sunday text or even a Palm Sunday sermon, but it's a Palm Sunday celebration because Jesus is, uh, is Lord for sure. Uh, we are uh, in the verses he just read for us. Thank you so much, Dylan. Um, let's just pray. You know, it's an exciting, uh, exciting weekend. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here. We thank you to, for the privilege to be your sons and daughters like we've been learning over and over in this letter to be your children uh, thank you for the outreach yesterday, the Family Fun Day. What a, uh, what a great way to pre-celebrate Easter with the community and with the church family. We thank you for the, the interactions we were able to be part of with that. Uh, we do thank you for the services coming up this week and next weekend, Lord, the Easter services, the Good Friday service. Uh, we just want to ask in the front end here, Lord, that you would be working in our hearts, each one of us. It's a busy time of year for many, but in the midst of that hecticness, help us to uh, be mindful to carve out times of, of scripture and prayer and reflection and, and expression, most of all, expressions of thanks to you for all that you've done for us in and through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we come to you now. We pray for uh, help with this uh, concluding passage in, in 1 John. Help us to understand it, to see what you're saying, and how to apply it broadly as Christians and individually as uh, in our own lives. Help us to live this out. And so we ask all that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
There's a school district in uh, Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, that's been trying out a new program there in the school. The program is called Leg Up for Cleveland's Kids, uh, or Luck for short, uh, Leg Up for Cleveland's Kids. And uh, here's what they do. Here's what the Luck program does. It takes urban students, city kids, out into the country on field trips. So they take kids from kind of you know, the, the inner city parts of, of Cleveland. They take them out to basically places like this, places where we live. And uh, while they're there, it's not just kind of random field trips. It's a specific program. While they're there, they, they learn how to ride horses. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a equine therapy, I think it's called. They, they take them, although they're not in therapy, but it's, they take them out to, to ride horses, and not just to you know, kind of get on a horse and ride one, but to learn all about horses, to take, how you take care of them, how you manage them, the whole, the whole thing. It's this ongoing program. Uh, this will not surprise you horse people, uh, but there's actually been lots of benefits. It's been a very successful program. There's been lots of benefits for the students who've participated. And I don't know if they were surprised by this or if they knew this was going to happen, but one of the most notable benefits, one of the things that, stood out the mo- that has stood out the most is the effect that the horses has ha- have had on their confidence. These, these teenagers, mostly teens, the, the effect that the horses have had on the students' confidence. Uh, one of the leaders of the program said, uh, we have found that the kids' confidence immediately goes up. Like they notice it as soon as they get back to school. Uh, the kids' uh, confidence immediately goes up after they work with the horses. And that's a big deal. Right? If you think about the, the sort of situation many of those students are in, many of them come from tough situations. Just, you know, life has, has been hard for many of them. And so anything that builds them up, right, anything that builds up their confidence, that's a good thing. That's a, that's a win, right? It's a win to have your confidence, your confidence built up that way. That's how John ends this letter. First John ends on, a, on an up note. John ends by giving you and me a confidence boost, a spiritual confidence boost. And we need that. We really need that these days because we live in, in uncertain times, right? The world is an uncertain place, and you don't need me to tell you that. You know it yourself. Uh, pandemics, uh, politics, inflation, uh, now there's a war in Europe, and there's always a war somewhere, but a war in Europe, you know, because of the last hundred years has a way of making us extra nervous. Uh, that, that's going on now. Uh, the weather is endlessly uncertain, right? You just, you never know what you're going to get the next day, and, and that affects us, right? Some places it's not a big deal, you know, maybe their picnic gets called off, but Uncertain weather has a big impact on, on our, our local economy, so we live with that kind of uncertainty. Uh, and, and that's just the big picture stuff. Then there's all the little uncertainties that we live with in our day-to-day lives. You know, every one of us, you get up in the morning, you've got a plan. You know, maybe it's a tight plan, maybe it's a loose plan, but you've got a plan. And I don't know about you, but half the time my plan's blown up by 10 a.m. You know, it just doesn't go the way I want it. And so we live with uncertainty. And in the big picture, we live with it in our personal lives. Uh, it happens a lot. But not everything is up in the air. Right? There are some things that are certain. There are some things we can count on in this world. And that's what John makes us focus on here in the conclusion to the letter. As he wraps up 1 John, he, he focuses in on the things we know. And you see where he uses that word. If you look at the passage, you heard Dylan read it before. If you look at verses 13 through 21, there's a word John keeps repeating. And he actually repeats it seven times, seven times in, in nine verses. He, he talks about something that we know something that we know. And as I was <clears throat> studying this passage this week, 
That stood out to me as the, as the unifying theme. This passage is all about things we know. And so uh, believers in Jesus, believers in Jesus are confident. Because we're followers of Jesus, we are confident about the most important things. We're not confident about what the weather is going to do tomorrow, but we are confident about the most important things in life. And that's what John focuses on here in, in the end of this passage. There are some things we can count on. And he actually talks about five. So I want to walk you through five. There are five things that we're certain about. And we're certain about them because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So these are, very, these are all Christ-centered. These are things we know because of Jesus. It's not just things we know, like gravity or something. They're things we know because of Jesus. So let's take a look at that. If we could uh, go ahead and look at these five things we know for certain. Number one, we know for certain that we have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, you can be confident. You are confident that you have eternal life. And that's where John starts. It's the first one. It's right there in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. So that phrase, I want to start with that phrase, I write these things so that. This is the third time in this letter he's used that particular language. I write these things so that. The first one was way back in the introduction, way back in chapter 1, verse 4. You might remember, uh, he says, we uh, write these things so that our joy or your joy may be complete. We're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And if you've been here for even half of these sermons, you know I've been making the case that I think that's the the purpose statement for the whole letter. Uh, John writes this letter, 1 John, so to help us grow in our joy in the Lord. And so I think you could show everything, almost everything anyway in this letter is connected in some way to you and me experiencing fullness of joy in and through Jesus Christ. So that's his big purpose of the letter. It's not his only purpose, though, because he uses that phrase another time. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, uh, I write these things so that you may not sin. Remember that one? Challenging one, right? John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse, verse 1, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And we've talked about that one. It's another theme that runs through the letter. I don't think it's the main purpose. Call it a secondary purpose of the letter. He's equipping us against sin. He's equipping us in the ongoing battle against sin that we all fight with. So that was, that's the second time he used that phrase. The third one is right here, right? So he's telling us. If we wonder, why did you write this letter to me, John? Well, here's the reason I wrote this. I wrote this so that you can know something. I write these things, he says in verse 13, so that you may know. Now, before we focus in on the something that he wants us to know, you already know what it is because I told you, but before we talk about eternal life, you have to notice who he writes to. It's very important, right? He says, I write this to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. There's that theme again. There's that emphasis once again on belief, believing in Jesus. That's another one he's talked about a lot in this letter. Uh, and, and so what he tells us there is he starts what I, I starts the conclusion to the letter. Uh, he says, "Look, this is this is for the Jesus people, right? This is for those who believe in Jesus. It's not for everybody on the planet. It's only for those who believe in Jesus." Now, of course, anyone can do that. It's available to all. Anyone on the planet can put his or her faith in Jesus, right? Anyone can do that. But if you, if you listen to this sermon or you read this letter and you go, yeah, I'd like to know some things in this uncertain world. I'd like to have some confidence. You got to know that the, 
the gate to get into that confidence is Jesus. John says so in verse 13. I write these things to those who believe in the Son of God. And so this certainty we're talking about today is, is tied directly to Jesus. You have to know Jesus. If you do, here's what you know. Number one, you know that you have eternal life. That's where he goes in verse 13. Uh, you, are, you, you are confident that you have uh, eternal life. And if you were here last week, you might remember he was just talking about that, right? We were just talking about eternal life in verses 11 and 12. It was actually the last thing I talked about in last week's sermon. Now it's the first thing we're talking about in this week's sermon. Uh, he used the word life four times in verses 11 and 12. Now he's got it here again in verse 13. He's talking about eternal life. So if you believe in Jesus, bottom line, you believe in Jesus, you know you have eternal life. That's a confidence boost, right? That builds up our confidence. And it does it in a couple of ways. Uh, for one thing, it, it boosts our confidence in the face of death. And again, this is where we ended last week. We'll, we'll, we'll start here. Uh, you know, we're all going to die. And as we, we face that difficult reality, we have hope. We have hope. We have peace. We even have joy as we think about death. Not that we're in a hurry to get there. He doesn't say that. Right? We're not in a hurry to get there. That's not the idea. But when it comes, when it comes, we know where we're going. That's part of verse 13. We know we have eternal life. There's another way this helps. Uh, the other way it helps is that it makes us confident about our salvation. Right? It makes us confident about our salvation with the Lord. Sometimes we'll use the word assurance. Right? We talk about assurance of salvation sometimes. And that's what, that, I think that's tied to this verse 13. Um, and this is something we've talked about along the way in this series. You can tell this is a concluding sermon to a 13-week series. If you're visiting us today, you kind of get the whole series in one sermon. It's kind of convenient. Uh, but, but one of the things we've talked about is the ongoing fight against sin. And God expects us to do that, right? He, we've talked about this. Uh, we, we need to not give in. Sin shouldn't have a, this... this uh, staying place. Sin should not abide in our lives. Remember chapter 3, verse 6, uh, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. A very strong verse. No one who, who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. And so we're not supposed to indulge in sin. We're not, we're, right? we're supposed to confess it, get rid of sin. But, but sometimes people take those verses and they think that this means their salvation is in danger somehow. And I think verse 13 removes that possibility. Uh, the fact that we struggle doesn't mean we lose, it does not mean we lose our salvation, right? The father doesn't kick you out of the family just because you mess up sometimes. On the contrary, John says here in verse 13, those who believe in Jesus know, they know that they have eternal life. There's no qualifier on that. Those who believe in Jesus know they have eternal life. So that's number one. Number two, Second thing uh, that we know for sure is that we pray effectively. We pray effectively. That's what John says in verses 14 and 15. We are confident uh, in our prayers. Let me read the two verses, and then we'll take them apart. Uh, he says, and this is the confidence. This is the confidence. There's, there's the word. Uh, that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. So here's something else, John says, that we're confident about. We are confident that when we pray, the God of heaven and earth hears us. We are confident, he uses the word, we're confident that God hears our prayers. I have a bad habit 
at home. Actually, I probably have a lot of bad habits at home, but, but one of my bad habits at home is that sometimes I will start a conversation with my wife before I'm in the room. All right, so my wife's name is Laura. She's in the nursery today. Um, and uh, we have a split-level house, and our kitchen is upstairs, and sometimes I'll be working, doing something downstairs, whatever, and I'll, I'll think of something I want to talk to Laura about, and I'll be walking up the stairs, and I'll start talking about that something while I'm still walking up the stairs. And, uh, you know, 15 seconds, 20 seconds goes by, I'm well into my, my diatribe or whatever it is, and, you know, something the cats did wrong or whatever. And uh, I, I come up into the kitchen, and she's not even there. Or, or maybe she's got headphones on, right? And she's listening to a podcast or some music or something. Or, or, or worse, she's on the phone, right? She's on the phone talking to somebody about some school board thing or something. And, and I'm, I've just been really rude, you know? I've been going on and on. And you know, she's on this important phone call, something like that. And so I've been, I've been trying to work on this, right? I've been trying to, to not just charge up the stairs and launch into whatever I want to talk about because I've got to recognize she's not always available, Right? She's got other stuff going on in her life. She's not always available to just listen to what I have to say. That never happens with God. That is never the case with God. Uh, my, my conversation with my wife is not always effective, right? She's not even available to, to listen. Uh, but my conversation with God is always effective. Our prayers are always effective because God always hears us. John says that. We know we know that he hears us. He's never on the phone. He's never distracted with what's happening on the other side of the globe. He always hears his children when we pray. But wait, it gets better, because not only does he always hear us, he also answers us. John says that. Actually, the fact that God, we know that he hears us, that's just the setup for the main idea of verses 14, 15, because the main verb there is the second no. It's the one that we know that he answers us. So verse 15, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know, there's your main verb, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. And so our prayers are effective, just straight up. He just says it. Our prayers are effective. Not only does God hear, but God also answers now, there is a qualifier. There is a qualifier. You see it. It's right there. The qualifier is that he answers us according to his will. All right? So, he, you know, you make the universe, you make the rules. He, he, uh, he answers us according to his will, it says in verse 14. And so which, what, what are the prayers God says yes to? You know, you've, many of you have heard the old cliche, God always answers our prayers, just sometimes he says no. Right? Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. Uh, you, you, many of you have heard that, and if you haven't heard it before, you've heard it now. Which prayers does God say yes to? He says yes to the prayers that are in alignment with his will. Right? Those are the ones he says yes to. And so, if we want to see a growing, a growing effectiveness in our prayer lives... The goal isn't to learn like a better system for praying or a better, better technique. The goal is to get our prayers more and more in alignment with his will, right? Because those are the prayers God says yes to. It's the prayers that are in alignment with the kinds of things God wants to do on planet earth. And so that's what our prayers are. You know, our prayer lists are not meant to be wish lists, I wish this would happen. I wish that would happen. Our prayers are meant to be uh, the way in which we participate in God's work on planet Earth. That, that's what our, our prayers are. Um, I could show that in a bunch of different places, but let's just go straight to the top, right? When the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. You, you remember how it goes. 
Uh, it starts with acknowledging our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then where does it go first? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right? Thy will uh, be done. And so you know, Jesus tells us right there, prayer isn't about what we want. Prayer is about what he wants. Right? That's that idea of being in alignment with his will. I like how one commentator I was reading this week put it. Uh, she said, prayer's power consists in lifting our wills to God, not in bringing his will down to us. Right? The point of prayer isn't to change his mind, it's to change our minds, if I, if I can paraphrase that. And when we pray that way, and as we're learning to pray that way, and how do we learn that way? Well, we learn it through experience. A lot of it is just trial and error. And I know that can be a little frustrating sometimes, but that's the nature of life, right? How do you learn riding a, ride a bike? You fall over 10 times, then you get it right on the 11th. I mean, a lot, you know, and, and I think that's true sometimes with learning how to pray God's will. We learn it experientially. We also learn it from Scripture, right? So Scripture prayers, you know, if, you, if it's in here, we know it's His will. So, so that's another uh, way that factors into it as well. And so, so when we pray that way, when we're praying and as we're praying in alignment with God's will, we know God will answer. We know, we can be confident of that, that our prayers will be effective. Number three, uh, the, uh, the third thing we know for sure is that we know we have victory over sin. And, and I know some of these, they feel like he's bouncing onto a different topic, but actually they flow right out of each other. Number three here flows right out of number two. Uh, when we believe in Jesus, we can be confident, confident that we have victory over sin. Now, this is what verses 16, 17, and 18 are about. And I think a lot of Bibles will make 18 its own paragraph. I think 18 goes with 16 and 17. So I'm going to treat them together. And these three verses are probably the trickiest part of this passage. So uh, if, if you read through this ahead of time and you're like, ooh, I wonder what that means, it was probably in verses 16, 17, or 18. So this is, uh, I think, one of the more, more tricky parts. So I'll spend a little more time with this third point. Uh, we'll start with verse 16, and uh, let me just read half of verse 16. I want to deal with the first half of it first. So John says, if anyone sees his brother or, or sister, we've talked about how that word includes both, if anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, this is the anyone, the anyone should ask, and God will give him, the person being prayed for, will give him life. And so if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. John has talked a lot in this letter. He's talked quite a bit about overcoming sin. I mentioned that before. But most of what he's talked about has had to do with our own sin. Right, so I sin, how do I deal with my sin? Remember beginning of chapter 2, gave us a lot of great advice. It was, it was how do you deal, how does each of us deal with our own sin? Here in verse, uh, verses 16, 17, and 18, John raises a related issue. What do we do about other people's sin? What do we do about other people? And when I say other people, when, he says, when, I, when I say other people on his behalf, we're talking specifically about another Christian. Right? So we're not talking about our unsaved neighbors at, at this point. That's not who, who he's talking about there in, at the beginning of verse 16, because he says it's a brother. And we've talked about, you know, that family of God is a theme that runs all through this. So, so he's talking about a, a brother or sister in Christ. What do we do when we see a, a fellow Christian sinning? What do we do about that? Well, the answer, according to John, is that we should pray. Right? Now, if I was doing like a topical sermon, I could take you to some other passages that talk about other, other ways to think it through. But when John raises this issue, his answer is, when we see 
another Christian sinning, we should pray. If a brother or sister commits a sin, our first response should be to pray for that person. Which, if we're honest, is not usually our first response. Right? It's not. It's not usually our first response. It's a hard thing to acknowledge and to admit to, but more often, uh, our first response is to go tell somebody about it. Right? Hey, did, did you see what so-and-so's doing? Oh, man, that's not good. He's, he's an elder. He shouldn't be doing that, or a deacon, or whatever, right? You know, or sometimes we'll even, you know, we'll, we'll sanctify it a little bit. We'll turn it into a prayer request, you know, but uh, we'll, we'll share a prayer request for somebody for 15 minutes, and then we'll never pray about it. So, sometimes we do that. John says, don't do that. Don't talk to each other about it. When you see somebody sinning, don't talk to each other about it. Talk to God about it. That's what he tells us to do. We say, oh, I, that's, that's not that kind of self-righteous for me to pray for another Christian who's got a sin. No, no, John tells us to do it. Don't talk to each other about it. Talk to God about it. Pray, he says, for that person. And then look at the promise that's there. He says, if you do, God will, God will answer your prayer. God will give him life, he says. God will give him life. And, and the idea there is that God is going to help that person overcome the sin. God will help that person. So sitting in quiet judgment isn't going to help the person, or talking to somebody else about it isn't going to help that person, but praying to God to help that person, that will help that person. And John actually says so in verse 18. That's why I think verse 18 is connected to 16 and 17. Skip, the, skip 17 for a second. We'll come back to that. Uh, if you look at 18, he says, everyone who's been born of God, and who, he's talking there about born again. He's talking about that brother. He's talking about the brother back in verse 16. Uh, it's, it's a person who's born again. We used, I think it was two weeks ago. He used that phrase and we talked about, fleshed that out. So everyone who's born again doesn't keep on sinning, does not keep on sinning, right? So, so this is the reason. This is the reason that we should pray. So I see that brother committing a sin. Why should I pray for him? Is it because I'm worried about the reputation of the church? That's actually not the reason. <laughs> I mean, it might be an ancillary reason, a secondary reason, but it's not the main reason. The reason I should pray for that brother or sister is that sin does not fit. Verse 18, uh, everyone who's born again does not keep on sinning. Everyone who's born of God does not keep on sinning. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the family. Right? I've, I've used this illustration weeks ago earlier in this book. Um, all, you know, if, you, if you are part of a family, most of us are part of some kind of a family, your family has rules. Right? Things our family doesn't do. Right? We don't do that. You know, maybe we don't root for the Hawkeyes. Or, we, you know, or some of them might be more serious. But we don't do that in our family. That's the idea here. We don't do that in our family. Sin doesn't fit the family of God. And so that's, that's the why. This is why we should pray for one another when we see one another struggling with sin. And then the, the promise is, comes in the second half of the verse 18. So... Uh, Everyone who's been born of God, uh, when we pray that way, God helps them. When we do that, he who was born of God, see that in the middle of verse 18? Now he switched on us. This is one of the things that makes it tricky. Now he's talking about Jesus. So when we pray for a born-again person, the one who was born of God, and, and like I say, the language is a little tricky to follow, but he, it's, a, it's an incarnation reference. Remember how G, the, um, the birth of Jesus is described in Matthew chapter 1. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's the sense in which Jesus is born of God. So the, he who was born of God protects that person, he says. Let me just read the verse again. Going from my notes, let's read from the verse. Uh, 18 says, and we know that everyone who's been born of God, the, the Christian, does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, Jesus, protects that person, and the evil one does not touch that person. 
So Jesus is going to protect them when we ask him to. That's what that boils down to. Your, your prayer will be effective. So if you see me sinning, if you see Don, he, Don has this problem, Don has that problem, pray for me, please. Pray, right? Pray. And if you do, your, your prayer, John says, will be effective. Jesus himself will be engaged. He will protect that person, and he will give that person victory. So it's actually connected back to verses 14 and 15, which you see why I say number three flows out of number two. Uh, it's an example of an effective prayer. It's an example of an effective prayer. Pray for one another in our fights. We should pray for one another in our, our shared struggle against sin. And when we pray that way, we can actually be confident that God will give victory. He'll protect us. He'll watch over us. He'll give us victory. He'll give you victory in your prayer, and he'll give your brother or sister victory uh, in, uh, against the sin. He'll give them victory. So that's, that's the, the bookends part of verses 16, 17, and 18. Let me uh, <clears throat> focus on the middle part, because that actually is probably the most confusing part of this passage. And if you look at it, most of your Bibles are going to set it apart as if it's like sort of a parenthesis or an aside. And it, it is. It's an explanatory thing that John inserts here so that they understand who he's telling them to pray for. All right? So he makes a distinction. You see it there in your Bibles. He makes a distinction between two kinds of sin. Right? That's what it looks like anyway. And so he says there's a sin not leading to death, and then there's sin leading to death. So you got sin not leading to death, sin leading to death. And when you read that, right, when you read that, it sounds like he's saying some sins are worse than others. Isn't that what it sounds like? Right? Some sins are worse than others. So you got the big sins, usually the ones you yourself don't struggle with, but anyway, uh, you, you got the big sins. <laughs> Right? Those are the really bad ones. The big sins are the sins that lead to death. And then you got the little sins. And yeah, they're not good, but they're just little sins. Right? Those, those are the sins not leading to death. You can probably tell that's not what I think John's talking about. That's, I, that is not what John's saying. There's, I don't think there's any biblical merit for this idea that there's some big sins and little sins. Uh, that's not what he's saying. He's not making a distinction between two types of sin. He's making a distinction between two types of sinners. I think that's the right way to read this. And so it's not big sins and little sins. It's saved sinners and unsaved sinners. We're all sinners, but there's two types of sinners. There's saved sinners and there's unsaved sinners. So sin that leads to death is sin that's committed by unsaved people. Why? Because all sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. Paul says it in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So those who accept the gift of God have what we talked about in point one, but those who don't accept the gift of, of eternal life, the wages of sin is death, right? And so uh, if a person's sins are not washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, it leads to death. It leads right straight to hell, right? It leads to eternal death, which is the kind of death he's talking about here. So what's the sin that does not lead to death? Well, sin that does not lead to death is the sin that saved people commit. It's the sin that saved people commit. Why? Because our sin does not lead to death because Jesus already died for it. Right? So you and I do not have to die because of our sin because of what we celebrate this week. Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. So technically, our sin leads to death too. All sin leads to death. But in our case, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus died that death for you. 
right? So in our case, Jesus, it, 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 Jesus died for our sin rather than you and I having to die for our sin. So our sin does not lead to death. That's why I would, I would say, so the sin that does not lead to death is the sin committed by saved sinners. The sin that does lead to death is the sin, saved, uh, is, uh, sin by unsaved people. To be clear, the sin that you and I commit is still terrible. It's awful. It's horrible, which is why he is focused on it so much in this letter, and he actually specifies so in verse 17. Right? Just look at the text. In, the, in verse 17, he says, um, how does he say it? <clears throat> I better I quote him, not just my own self here. Uh, any wrongdoing, excuse me, all wrongdoing is sin. Why does he say that? Because he wants us to not just kind of say, oh, well, my sin doesn't lead to death. It's no big deal. No, John says, all wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death, the sin that you and I commit. Why? Because it's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So all of that answers a question for us that actually people will ask me sometimes. And so it's an important question. I don't think any of this is his main point. We'll come back to the main point here as I wrap up the point. But sometimes people say, how should I pray for a non-believer? How should we pray for a non-believer who sins, right? Maybe you live next door to somebody and, you know, they're whatever. They're, they're, it's this open embrace of sin, right? How do, you, how do you pray for somebody like that? Well, the answer, John says, is that you should pray that that person gets saved. How do you pray for a non-believer? You pray that the non-believer gets saved. Do not bother praying that they'll overcome their sin. They don't need to overcome their sin, right? Don't bother praying for that. John actually tells us not to pray that. Do you see it? I do not say that you should pray for the person whose sin leads to death. Don't bother praying for them the way you pray for your brother. Don't bother. They don't need to overcome temptation. They need to get saved. Then you can pray that they'll overcome temptation. Right? Once they're saved, then you can pray that God will deliver them from alcoholism or same-sex attraction or whatever it is. Right? Then you can pray for that thing once the person is saved because that's how you pray for a believer which is how he told us to pray for one another, right? So when you pray, uh, how do you, what, what, do you, what do you pray for a brother or sister? Right? When you see a brother or sister committing, how does he say it, verse 16? A sin not leading to death. Well, when you see that happening, you pray for that believer to overcome. You pray for victory. You pray that they'll stand strong against temptation. You pray for conviction. Pray for perspective so that they understand what, that God is better. And, you know, if I have Jesus, I have everything. Pray for wisdom, Pray that they'll you know, have the resolve to decide before they ever get in the tempting situation that they'll, that they'll resist. Pray for all of that kind of thing. And when we pray that way, John says, when we pray for the believer, those prayers will be effective. Right? That verse 18, God will give us that victory. And so it's, it's a long, it required a lot of explanation there, but what he's promising us there is that we can be confident when we pray for one another in the struggle against sin. And so sometimes, you know, we want to defer to, like I said, sinfully, we want to defer to gossip. Or sometimes we, we see, you know, we read the stuff in Matthew 18 about confronting, uh, you know, confronting somebody and we want to go there first, you know, oh, well, my, <clears throat> she hurt my feelings. And so I'm going to go confront her about hurting my feelings. That may or may not be the right thing to do, but have you actually even prayed for her about how insensitive she is to people sometimes? I think that's, that's the idea here. We, we skip a step sometimes and it's the one John tells us to go to first. When we, when we see one another struggling with sin, let's pray for one another. Let's just keep it between us and God and ask him to move in that person's life, to do what he promised to do in verses 16, 17, and 18. 
Number four. All right, moving on. The fourth thing that we know for certain from this text is that we know that we belong to God. We know we belong to God. When we believe in Jesus, we can be confident of that. We're his. We're his. We belong to him. And that's what he says in verse 19. Uh, Verse 19 is is as easy as verses 16, 17, and 18 were complicated. I'm glad to come to verse 19. He says, we know. And I I circled them in my Bible. You might go through and circle the places here where he says we know. Um, Here's another thing we know. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So two things there. First, uh, you're his. We've talked some in this book about identity. You're his. You belong to him. If, if, If there's any sense of not measuring up, not being enough, the Father, the Creator, has chosen you for himself. You're his. You belong to him. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. So there's that. There's that, that um, I don't know, that, that, that comfort that comes from that. You're confident of that. There's also clarity. I, I look at verse 19 and I just say, there's just so much clarity there. We, we began by talking about life in an uncertain world and you don't know what's going to happen here and you don't know what's going to happen there and is gas going to go yet higher and there's so much uncertainty we live with. Well, here's some clarity. Here's some clarity. Uh, We know where the lines are with the most important things. We know where we stand. Uh, People will tell us the world is gray. Things are complicated. It's complex. There's so many cultures. You just can't say anymore. We know better now. We can't say this is right and this is wrong. You just can't do that anymore. That might be true for some things. You know, some things are nuanced. If you're trying to pick the best ketchup, maybe, or... I don't know, your favorite music style. I like jazz, you like classical, you know, that kind of thing. You know, maybe there's nuance there. Maybe there's, there's room for, for shades of gray with stuff like that. But according to verse 19, that's not true with the very most important things. When it comes to a person's standing with God, when it comes to our standing with God, it's all very black and white, according to the Scripture. And according to John, you either belong to Jesus or you belong to the evil one, right? There's no third way. This has come up in this letter before because John tends to write that way, very dualistic, and he's, and he's right there with Scripture. You either belong to Jesus or you belong to the evil one. Those are the only options, John says. So if we believe in Jesus, we belong to God. <laughs> I said it a minute ago, we belong to him. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect, uh, right? That's not our claim. Don't be arrogant. That's not our claim. We get things wrong sometimes. Um, as a pastor, I subscribe to a couple of different newsletters that give kind of Christian news specifically. Not a day goes by, it seems, where they're not <clears throat> telling me about another scandal or another leader who messed up or another church that did this or that. It's all over the place, right? It's, it's so, so we're not saying we're perfect. We make mistakes. We even sin, which is why we have to pay attention to all this. But if we believe in Jesus, there's this foundational clarity. If we believe in Jesus, we belong to God. We are members of his family. And like I said before, he's not going to kick us out. Here's the other half of the clarity, though. We also know where the world's coming from. We know where the world's coming from. And that, that's clear too, John says. The world, you know, and remember how he uses world. It's that world system, right? That's how he uses that term in this letter. It's, it's not the individual people It's this system that stands in rebellion and rejection of God. And so as people participate in that, as they they participate in that rebellion against God, they're part of that world system. And John says that's very clear, right? The world, why does the world act that way? Well, the world lies in the power of the evil one, he says, right? No, no, 
No hedging, no, no hedging his bets here. No dancing around it. The world lies in the power of the evil one. If you want to know why Russia invaded Ukraine, there it is. Right? It's because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And yeah, there's economics and European politics and international relations. All that kind of other stuff is mixed in too. But in the end, it comes down to this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you want to try to understand the, the baffling changes, the baffling redefinition uh, that's gone on in the last 20 years of human sexuality and gender, if you want to begin to try it, how did we go from you know, where we were you know, from when I was a kid in the 1980s? You know, it, how, did you, how did we go from that to this? How did we get there? And you can write books, you can write volumes, and they're written, and they're helpful, right? Talking about the sociology and enlightenment and post-enlightenment and modern, all these, these seven-syllable seven words that, that get thrown around. And that's helpful stuff. Some people are called to read and understand that stuff. But really, it, you know what? It boils down to what John says right there in verse, uh, verse 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That, that's what it comes down to. And so there's clarity in that. There's confidence in that. If you've trusted in Jesus, you know where you stand. You know where you're coming from because you belong to him. And, you know, you and I got to keep fighting against our own sin. But as we are founded on this word, we know, we know what, what's right. And you, and you know where the world's coming from too, John says. And that actually comes right into the last one. The last one flows right out of number four. It's number five. We have found the truth. We can be confident if we have if we know Jesus, we are confident that we have found the truth. John talks about that one in verse 20. He says, and we know, there it is again, and we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and the eternal life. So at the beginning of verse 20, John reminds us one more time of one of his big themes it's the incarnation. It's that Jesus has come. So he, he says, and we know that the Son, the Son of God has come. Uh, it's probably a reference, I think, to, to chapter 4, verse 2. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We talked about how important that is to believe that. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We know that, John says. We know that he's come. And so, you know, we're not, when we talk about the Son of God, it's not some vague spiritual sort of thing. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, that man born of Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, walked this planet, was crucified in Jerusalem. We celebrate it and remember it this week. God raised him from the dead. We know that. And he came and he, he, he gave his life for us. And he also gave us something. He, he gave us understanding, John says. He showed us the way. And what did he point us to? He pointed us to him who is true. That's, that's what John says. He pointed us, he showed us him who is true. And I will tell you, at this point, John's language gets a little, um, uh, it, it's a little confusing, it's a little tricky to figure out whether he's talking about God the Father or God the Son. Um, in the end, I, I kind of arrive at the conclusion he, he means both, but the emphasis seems to be on the Son. The emphasis seems to be on the Son when he, when he says that part there about he is the true God and eternal life. It's, he seems to be, I think he's talking there about Jesus. He's emphasizing again that Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? We've talked about that. So, but, but it actually, some of the things he says there in verse 20 apply equally to God the Father. So, so his idea is we know God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know him through God's Son, through Jesus Christ. And so the point is, the point of verse 20, and he uses the word 
three times, uh, he, the point is we have found the truth. You see that? We, we know that we have found the truth. We found, and truth isn't a proposition, it's a person. We found him. We found him. Or more properly, he found us, I suppose, if you want to think of it that way. But uh, it's true, he reached out to us first. But, but in terms of our experience of it, the way we would ex- describe it to another person, we found him. We found the truth. We are in him, John's words, we are in him who is true. We belong to Jesus, and now we know the truth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is true God and eternal life. And we belong to him. There's one more verse, one more verse here in 1 John. And given what verse 20 says, it feels a little anticlimactic. Maybe you've thought this yourself. A lot of the commentators pointed out. It it feels like actually a little bit of a letdown, verse 21 does. If John had stopped with verse 20, think about it. Let's look in your Bible. If 1 John ended at verse 20, we'd go, wow, what a great ending. Ooh, that's a rousing ending. You know, true God and eternal life. Woo, you know, that's a great ending to a book. But he doesn't stop. John doesn't stop with verse 20. He adds six more words to the letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's verse 21. Now you read that and you say, why? What what does that have to do with all these things we know? Why does he insert that there at the very, very end? What's the connection? I think the connection, the answer to that question, has to do with the first two words little children, little children. We've talked about that, that phrase, that term of endearment. John's used it all throughout the letter. I counted them up. If I counted right, it's nine times. First John's not a long book. Nine times in this letter, he calls his readers either children or little children, right? And he refers to them that way in the third person, uh, several more. But nine times he calls us children or little children. And I've pointed out along the way, every single one of them is a term of endearment. Every single time, he's emphasizing his affection for the readers, but more importantly, he's emphasizing God's affection. It doesn't matter so much whether John loves us. What matters is that God loves us, and this is God's word. And so what he's emphasizing is God loves them. God loves them. And so as John is closing... Right? And who knows how it actually would be a fun thing to ask him someday in eternity. You know, had he, had he kind of like put the stamp on the envelope and then he was like, oh yeah, one more thing. You know, is, is that how verse 21 came about? We, we don't know. But, but here he is at the end and he goes into pastor mode. He goes into shepherd mode one more time and he pulls them close and he's got one last loving warning. Right? And I pictured it's a little bit like, you know, you know, if you're a parent, you drop your kid off at college. If, you know, if you've, some of us have done that, some of you, maybe you'll get there someday. Uh, you know, and there's this like, you know, you don't want to leave yet. And, and you're like, you know, remember to eat some vegetables, you know, and you know, remember to do your laundry, you know, and it's, you know, or maybe you're not dropping off at college, could be military, wherever you're dropping them off. And, you know, maybe just be summer camp, but, but it's just that one last thing, one last thing. And, I, and that's how verse 21 feels. You know, it's watch out. Be vigilant, he says, keep yourselves, specifically, and then he's, it's, a, it's not a general warning, it's very specific, keep yourselves from idols. Why idols? What does that have to do with these things we know? Why does he single out idols? The answer is that idols pull us away from God, right? I mean, we talk about the Ten Commandments, and they also are offensive to God, but I think pastorally, the problem with idols is they pull us away from the one who loves us. Right? And so they, they steal everything John's been talking about. What's the problem with idols? Idols steal our joy. 
They, they steal our confidence. They steal our victory over sin. They steal it all. They just wreck all of it. And so he ends with this tender warning, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Now at this point, modern people like us say, what do you mean idols? We don't got idols. I don't worship idols. That's, a, that's an old-fashioned thing. That's an ancient world thing. And that's the point where I remind you that anything we put before God is an idol. Anything we put in front of God is an idol. And so it could be a statue in a temple, and there's plenty of places in the world today where they still do that. It could be a statue in a temple. It could be a little alcove in the house with pictures of the ancestors and a little incense burning, something like that. Uh, you know, but you know, that, you know, that to many is more obviously idolatry. But you know what? It could equally be my favorite sports team or my career or my family or sex. Sex is such an idol in our day. We don't worship statues of Aphrodite. We just cut straight to the chase, right? I mean, it's, it's, sex is an idol. Food is an idol. Success can be an idol. Ambition, the, the fame of my own name can be an idol. Uh, making an even bigger profit than the profit I'm already making, that can become an idol. Knowing more about a particular topic than every other person in the room, for some of us, that becomes an idol. feels good to be the expert in the room. And that, if we're not careful, can become something that supplants, that takes the place of God in our lives. I could, we could just go on and on and on making lists of things that are idols. It's why John Calvin, a famous Christian from history, famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. Calvin wrote that in one of his works. The human heart is an idol factory. His point was there's, there's no end. We just churn them out. There's no end to our capacity for putting other things ahead of Jesus Christ. And that's why John ends with this warning. It might feel a little anticlimactic in a literary sense, but it's very important. It's a tender, tender warning. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Guard it. Guard your confidence. Protect your joy. Don't let anything get in the way of what you know. Don't let anything pull you away from God. Let's pray. Lord, I want that to be our prayer today, that you would keep us from idols. Keep us from all those things that threaten to pull us away from you, that get in the way, that take your proper place in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, uh, anywhere where there's any uh, idol that we are tempted by. Keep us from it. Help us to keep us from it. Uh, thank you for these things of, that we get to know because of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help every one of us to walk in that confidence. Help us to walk uh, in the confidence and security of our salvation and of who we are in you, of your promise to help us overcome sin, uh, of all these things that we've had the chance to talk about today. Thank you so much, God, for doing these things in our lives. And uh, we would just pray that you'd help us, uh, help us to walk in the truth of it. Don't let anything come in the way, uh, no idols at all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.